Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There isn't a keener observer of American politics than Ezra Klein. He's been a blogger, a magazine writer, a cable host, the creator of the Wonk Blog unit at the Washington Post, and the great explanatory journalism site at Vox.com. He's the host of The Weeds podcast and also an eponymous podcast of his own at Vox. And he's the author of a brilliant new book, Why We're Polarized. It seems really pertinent as we turn the corner to this election. I sat down with Ezra yesterday to talk about all of this, and here's that conversation. Ezra Klein, good to see you, brother. How are you doing out there in California? My joke is always we're doing great on the adjusted baseline. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like uh, when I have you, I have there's so much I want to talk to you about, and particularly in light of the book you put out this year, uh, Why We're Polarized. There's so much about the election, so much about this COVID-19 thing, so much about Trump. A lot to talk about, but what you don't generally talk about and what I like to talk about here is you uh, and your story, and uh, and it's such an interesting uh, story. So Is it? It is. Well, we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. But... Uh, I'm I'm interested first in your in your family. Your 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 dad is actually Brazilian. He is. So my dad is Brazilian. He came here in the '70s. He's a mathematician. Um, I actually have a lot more family in Brazil than I have in the U.S. Um, I have a pretty small uh, extended family here in the States and a, a quite large one in Brazil, which has been. How are they doing now? I think they're all doing individually fine, but Brazil's not doing well. Uh, and Brazil just this week passed America in terms of its COVID death count. Um, and so the disaster many of us feared appears to be building there. So there's a lot of anxiety in that. But my father um, came here from Brazil. He uh, teaches it um, at the University of California. Um, and it is a funny thing to sort of both be the son of an immigrant and the son of a not immigrant because you kind of have both of those perspectives on America simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, before we get into that, and I'm in the same category, but before we get into that, how did your family get to Brazil? You, you, your family's Jewish. I assume there was at some point a migration from Europe. Yeah, from Eastern Europe. Uh, and I am a little hazy on exactly where in Eastern Europe. I think different members came from different places. I've heard Lithuania, but I've also heard other things. Uh, I think some people uh, left from pogroms. Um but I am not as strong sometimes on the family, on the deeper family history as I'd like to be. And so my ability to recount the stories uh, isn't, isn't as good as you think. But yeah, so they came from Eastern Europe. I think it was my great, great grandparents came. Um, and as an interesting little historical side note, uh, one of my um, uh, ancestors in Brazil was actually incredibly involved in the creation of the state of Israel through Brazil's vote in the UN. And, uh, and if you know about that vote, that was very close. Brazil was one of the actually deciding votes. And an ancestor of mine, um, one of my um, great grandfathers, I believe it was, was very involved in lobbying on that and, and, and was a big voice in Brazil on that. So there's a, there's a, a funny lineage there. Your mom, what's her family history. She's an artist, right? She She's a, a, an artist and a nanny and um, Newark Jew uh, and lived on the East Coast sort of growing up and then moved sort of in a big moment of change to California, um, I think also in the 70s. And she, my mom and my dad are fascinating people. I'm, I'm always a little reticent to talk too much about them to tell other people's stories for them. But what I will say is that my father is, when I tell you my father is a mathematician, 
an immigrant mathematician, whatever you just thought of is correct. <laughs> and when I tell you my mother is a, a kind of West Coast Huntington Beach artist, at least at that point in, in, in her life, what you just thought of is correct. And so there are very different streams that cross in my family and in their and in their partnership, um, which ended some years ago, but but produced me and my sister, and that sort of cross in in me. There's like a very logical uh, lineage there, like a a real like how do you put the pieces of the argument together? I once, I always try to understand my dad's work, and I never do. Um, he's at the kind of mathematics that numbers aren't relevant anymore. It's abstract. It's you know wave theory. It's Anderson localization theorem. Um, and every so often I'll try to get him to explain it to me. But once I said, why do you like it? And why did you do mathematics? And he said to me, because it's a place where everything makes sense. And that's always really stuck with me. And I would not, and, and that is not, I think, something that would drive my mother in the same way. And my mother is somebody who's much more comfortable in spaces of uncertainty and a kind of fuzziness operates much more on a kind of emotional dimension, sees those things very clearly. And so it has always been fascinating triangulating between the two of them. Do you see elements of your mother in yourself as well? Oh yeah. Very, I think yes, very much. I think my reputation in my work is this sort of logical reads the appendix tables and CBO documents. I'd say so, yes, yes. And I think people tend to admit, if you ask me what I'm good at, um, I actually don't think I'm particularly good at math. I think that I'm much more, I think that as a reporter, empathy is much more important than people recognize. And I think I'm very uh, good at being, um, I would almost call it like intellectually empathic. I can see where people are emotionally pretty quickly and what their argument is doing for them. And I don't think that's as visible in my work, but certainly in my podcast and in the conversations I have and in the way I report, my view is that's actually much closer to the core of what makes me good at my job than some of the things that are more obvious to people who are looking at my job. Well, you know the old joke about a social mathematician is someone who looks at your shoes instead of their own <laughs> uh, when they're talking to you. And obviously you've navigated um, you've navigated a lot of environments in your time in newsrooms and in Washington and so on that required more than looking at your own shoes or anybody else's shoes. I mean, you, you have an EQ that has enabled you to be successful, not just your analytical uh, mind. You, you said your folks uh, are no longer together. Did that happen while you were a kid? Yeah, when I was 12. Uh-huh. That was, I, I went through that myself with, how did that impact on you? It's a, I don't know how much I want to go into it. It was not a, my parents have a great relationship to this day and it was a divorce that when it happened made a lot of sense to me. So I was 12. I had a good sense of the um, family I was growing up in. I'm very close with both of them and I love them both very, very much. And by the time it happened for me, as much as there was difficulty in it, it I was relieved for them. Yeah. It's hard, though. That's a disruptive thing in a kid's life. I mean, as I said, I can attest to that. So everybody looks at you, and you're like the kind of the world's greatest sort of hip nerd, right? You're so nerdy, you're cool. I don't know. I don't know about the hip side of that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, you're a kind of major figure uh, in in social media, in the podcast world. Uh, every young person I know talks about stuff that you do in your podcast and so on you're a vegan, you're fit, you're thin, and so on. I was sort of stunned to learn that you were kind of a chubby loner uh, in many ways, a sort of gaming and smoking weed and not a very good student and so on. You, you say, if I describe my father, you will have an impression and you will be right. Or if I describe my mother, you will be right. Nobody would guess that that was who you were as a kid. Yeah, my life is in many ways a surprise to no one more than it is to me. Um, <laughs> it's always tricky when you're inside of it that you don't want to tell a, a, a creation story about yourself that is too pat, right? We all sort of narrativize our own life. Um, and I struggle with this. The I don't feel like a very different person today than I was then. And I will say the smoking pot happened when things had already turned around for me socially. I, I, I think of that as a positive um, development in my life. <laughs> That may be the hip part of the hip nerd thing. I don't know, but go ahead. <laughs> I struggled 
socially terribly when I was young. I just did. Um, I changed schools over and over and over again. I, I think the way I tell that story is because of bullying, and that was true. But the bullying was not nearly as painful as simply not having friends. Like, it's one thing to be bullied. It's another thing to not have allies. And I just had a lot of trouble relating. And I think a lot about, I feel in many ways, like I had to, in my teenage years, at some point sort of like derive how people, this makes me sound like a robot, um, like try to figure out how people were interacting with each other socially because I was clearly getting it wrong. Like I was getting it wrong. If you, one of the really tough things as a kid is if you go into a bunch of different environments because things keep not working out for you and the same thing happens, you realize it's you, right? If you change schools a couple of times and you still don't have friends and you still can't quite seem to make it work, you realize that it's you. And that was true for me. Why were you changing schools? Because of what I just said, because I was being bullied and because we were looking, like I was looking. Um, not, I didn't change schools a ton, but I did change schools a couple of times. When, and this was in elementary school, right? So, I mean, this was happening when I was young. Mm. I think there are a couple of things going on, but I don't know. Um, I definitely, I was, as you say, um, I, I was, I was, I was heavy. Like I weighed 50 or 60 pounds more than in high school than I do now. Um, but I don't think that was it. Uh, I like, I just, it just didn't click. That's the best way I can put it. And every part of it didn't click. Something that I have become very, people who know my work will notice that I'm a big, I, I think naturally in systems and structures. I tend to think less about individuals. If you read the book, um, it's all about the systems that surround individuals. And that's very deeply rooted in how I understand my own life. Things worked for me when I could change contexts out of school, basically. When I could find something where the way I worked and the way I acted seemed to make people like me or seemed to lead to uh, a certain kind of success or at least fulfillment for me. School was a nightmare for me. Um, I cannot to this day sit and listen to somebody lecture at me. I can barely watch a TED talk. Like that is, I have some kind of learning issue with that kind of processing um, where I just cannot do it. So sitting with, like that was nightmare. So I was doing very badly in school. And the social things, I don't know. I mean, even to this day, I'm, I have, I now have a lot more. I have like a wonderful group of friends and, but my best friends are my two best friends from high school. Um, and I did have uh, like, a, you know, one, I, I moved at one point um, uh, when I was in junior high and my next door neighbor from that move is still one of my best friends today. And then a couple years later um, uh, in high school, I met this other guy and he's still one of my best friends. And so I'm very, I'm very comfortable with a small number of people. And I'm, I still, is something my wife makes fun of me for. I am very comfortable talking to a crowd of 500 people and at the cocktail party or whatever before it, I will stand in the corner and like not really know how to deal with the room. It just, that's just how it is for me. Yeah. It's not all that unusual. You know, Seinfeld talks about the fact that the only place he really feels comfortable is on a stage talking to 500 or 1,000 people. I think that's something about, I have, I have a theory, and, and you, you may be a, a counterexample to it, but I have a theory that a lot of really good interviewers are very socially awkward because interviewing is a relief because it is a structured conversation. Mm -hmm. What I don't like about a lot of social interactions is how unstructured they are. I can't, I don't feel comfortable asking people the questions I really want to ask them. I don't cotton on to small talk easily. Whereas like when I, I, I sit down in a, in a podcast, I can basically immediately say whatever it is that I think would be the single most interesting thing to ask the person and have done the work to figure out what that is beforehand. There's a relief in that. Um, I'm sure that a psychologist could do a lot of work with that statement for me, but, um, but that, you know, that, that, that's natural. What is very clear from your work is that you are a voracious acquirer of information. Uh, I mean, you, you, you take comfort in gathering as much information as you can possibly gather. So that would make sense to me. You, as you point out, you did poorly in school. You got to the University of California at Santa Cruz, and you decided you wanted to write, and you got rejected by the school newspaper. I, I wouldn't say that. 
I, I did not decide I want to write. Um, so I got to Santa Cruz because um, California has a structure. California, I will say, it has this amazing public schooling system. Yeah. And it had a structure um, where, you know, if you did well enough on your SATs or well enough on your GPA, you could get into Santa Cruz or Riverside. And I did well on my uh, on my SATs. And so I got into Santa Cruz, which is great. I did not think I wanted to write. I wanted to be you. I wanted to work on campaigns or maybe one day run for office. I was very into politics by that point. I tried to join the student newspaper and this because of what I later did has become like a big part of the narrative. I, people tell about me and people love this fact that I got rejected. It's like Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team. You know, <laughs> I don't know it's... about that. But it, it is like a funny fact that, yes, I got rejected from an internship on City on a Hill Press at Santa Cruz. Um, but I wasn't applying, and this is part of why I'm sure they rejected me. I didn't have an, an ambition to write or to be a journalist or anything. I wanted to work in politics. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because um, I came to the University of Chicago as a student because I thought Chicago was a really interesting town, political town. I was fascinated by politics. I thought, wow, what a great place to be. And when I got to the University of Chicago at that time, I couldn't find anybody who wanted to have a conversation about anything that happened after the year 1800. <laughs> it's a lot of Rousseau and Hobbes. I went into, right, I went into journalism really to satisfy my interest in politics. And I started writing about politics. And that was my way uh, into journalism. And it sounds like that is true for you as well. Yeah, that, I, think, I think that's an insightful point. So if I think back to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz was an easier place for me than high school had been. Um, and I had a, you know, like a partnership there that was, it was very important to me, but I was very lonely there too. Um, I did not find a social circle there that worked for me. Um, and, and I remember that and like I went, I, it's part of why I left Santa Cruz and moved to UCLA. And I began writing about politics online because I found online a community of people who wanted to talk about what I wanted to talk about. Um, that was the lure of blogging for me was that it was social media. This is before social media the way we think of it now. It was a social form of media in which I found a community that was really – that liked me for – the way I kind of naturally was and what I naturally wanted to talk about. It, I don't I don't think I got into blogging so much for the love of writing about politics. I really do love writing about politics. I got into blogging because I loved talking about politics with people. Yeah. And that was a way to do it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, among those people that, that read your blog and your blog got a following was a, a friend of mine, Joe Trippi. And he gave you uh, your first kind of real political gig and internship in the Howard Dean campaign in, uh, in 2004. Tell me about that and how, I mean, Joe was, he gets too little credit for having been a visionary about where politics was going, where social media was going. I mean, he really had brilliant insights into that. And uh, yeah, so tell me about how you hooked up with him and, and uh, you, you left that Dean campaign uh, having lost the political bug. So tell me why. So a couple of things. So one, Joe is great and I'll everlastingly be grateful to him. So Joe was reading my blog when it had like 35 readers a day, which to me seemed like so many people and I had no idea any of them <laughs> were in any way important. Um, but the weird thing then, so this was 2003, it must have been or two, but so, you know, I was a young liberal at the Santa Cruz and writing about, among other things, the, the 04 election that was building. And I, that... I think people forget what that felt like. You know, the Iraq war was a disaster, George W. Bush. I mean, a lot of this has been retconned into like, oh, Bush, isn't he such an honorable man? It was a nightmare of an administration that had unbelievably disastrous effects on the world. And so there's this question of like, who are the Democrats going to run? I cannot quite retrace the steps that led to this. I think it was that I read Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, like the single greatest piece of campaign literature of all time. Yeah. Maybe the best campaign book ever. Ever. And Gary Hart is just like a fascinating character in that. And Gary Hart, in a weird way, was thinking about running in 2004. And I got into that idea. And so I was in the blogosphere, like the one under 30 or even under 25, <laughs> Gary Hart supporter arguing vociferously for Gary Hart. I was not a Dean supporter, not a Kerry supporter. Gary Hart was also in that category of a guy who saw the future more clearly than anyone. I think one of the great losses to the country was that Gary Hart got sidelined uh, by his, his, his 
you know, by what now seems like a quaint, you know, personal uh, uh, situation. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, but that guy, and I talk to him to this day, uh, he is an absolute visionary when it comes to the trend lines of the future. And uh, so it's not surprising to me that you were attracted to him. Can I tell you a Gary Hart story? Yeah. So I was a, um, it's a, it's going almost too far to call it an intern, but I was somehow involved in the not campaign, like the people trying to set up a Gary Hart run. And I was like trying to like recruit other interns. And he came out to the Bay Area and I, I had like bought on eBay. Like this is what a nerd I was. I had like bought <laughs> on eBay a signed copy of Gary Hart's book on military reform. I mean, like it's not, it's not honorable stuff here. Anyway, Gary Hart comes out and because of this work I'm doing for his not really campaign, he's going to give a couple speeches in the Bay Area. And um, I'm asked to drive him around. I'm like, it is the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me in my life. So I get to do it. And there's um, one, I think it was in Palo Alto and it ends up going, you know, there's another one in San Francisco. I have a bright blue Ford Focus. <laughs> it's a stick shift. It has roll up and down windows. Like the whole, you know, it's like not a, it's like dirty. It's like not a great car. So I'm driving Gary Hart around. We get, I've never driven in San Francisco. We're in terrible traffic one place to the other. I've not driven around the area that well, much. I don't know it that well. We keep being stuck in traffic on very sharp hills because it's San Francisco. And as I try to like use the stick shift to get up and down, I keep burning it out. At some point, he's like, would you just let me drive? And that, <laughs> for whatever reason, doesn't happen. It's just not, I would say, a great day. Two days later, two days later, he announces he's not running for president. <laughs> and there's always been this part of me. You think you symbolize the difficult, like if I have to rely on that guy, I got to get out of here. That has wondered if he spent this day with this like <laughs> idiot kid. Yeah, like I'm just too old for this shit. Like I don't need to be, you know, with these dumb college kids who can't even like, uh, you know, get me from one event to the other um, for a long shot candidacy. Anyway, I will just say too, because I'm more comfortable talking about other people than myself, in the category of people who are visionaries who I think don't get credit. I, this is like a deeply held belief on, of mine. Al Gore, like he got so much right so early. There's an old New Republic article where they make fun of him. This is in the 88 campaign. And they say something like, if in the future all our days are too hot and our computers lie lonely and unlinked, and there's like one other thing like that, then we will feel bad we didn't listen to that nice young man from Tennessee. And it's like all three things they said. It's like the internet, global warming, and there's – I'm sorry because I'm blanking on the third. And he was genuinely – he saw the future more clearly than other people. He saw it in the media. Current TV in many ways was a YouTube ahead of its time. Like he really saw some <laughs> some things coming and, and doesn't get the credit for it. You know, you think often about these things, these things that happen in history that are so significant – there, you know, 527 votes in the state of Florida tilted that election. And think how different history would have been. You know, there are more tragic, uh, you know, the assassin's bullet. I was watching a documentary about Robert Kennedy the other day, how different history would have been had he lived, because he probably would have won. And uh, he was kind of a transcendent figure who could uh, bridge a lot of these divides that that we still are, and you're writing, living with, and you're writing about today. And now a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Talk about Howard Dean. And, and trippy and that experience. So I wrote this post um, on my little blog and said, ah, Gary Hart's dropping out. Then I think I cursed a couple times or something. <laughs> and then I got this email very unexpectedly from Joe Trippy, who had an AOL.com email account, as I remember. And he said, hey, I'm Joe Trippy. Um, you know, would you like to come work on the Dean campaign? And I said, yeah. And I, I think I said, also, I don't know what I'm going to do this summer and because um, I was a college kid. And I said, yes, um, I worked on the field office in the Dean campaign, uh, which I was no good at. And not like I wasn't out in the field. I was sending like bumper stickers and things to, to people out in the field. I wasn't even on the digital team. It was very exciting to be there. But I realized really quickly that I did not like working on campaigns. And the reason I didn't like working on campaigns was I didn't like having to support a candidate no matter what it was they said, thought, or did. Um, 
not that that's not honorable or good work. It, it needs to be done and should be done. But I found it really hard. Like Dean had plans that were not the plans that I thought were the right ones. And so to have to argue that they were, um, I could just see that that was not going to be a future that worked for me. So I left that internship early. I think I was only there for four or six weeks in Burlington. And I met wonderful people. I have nothing but good things to say about the people on that campaign and Howard Dean himself. Um, but I was writing on the blog and it was like in this moment that it became clear to me that this thing I had thought was like a side gig on my way to working in politics was actually the thing itself, that it was the the writing um, that I really loved, the trying to assess and analyze politics that I really loved and that maybe I was even a little bit good at, um, not the being a staffer um, and having to kind of carry the torch for whomever whoever's team you're on. You know, there uh, Howard Dean was... Uh uh, also kind of a uh, important figure in the evolution uh, of politics for a couple of reasons. One, and you write about this, one is the way he raised money, and the other is the way he galvanized that process of energizing that donor base and energizing that base of supporters uh, by really cutting issues in a very, very sharp way. So talk about that and, and just what you took away from the Dean campaign. Dean now, so politics has like, I think, two axes that people often conflate. There's ideology. So people think of like how liberal or conservative you are. And then there's temperament. Um, and you can think of temperament in different ways. But for this case, let's call it like sort of confrontational towards con uh, and conciliatory. And Howard Dean was not that liberal. He was a Vermont governor. He had been a DLC member. He was a balanced budget guy. He was like— Yeah, he was a centrist. He was a centrist. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly now would be considered very much a centrist. Uh, you know, if you took his politics then and put them now. What he was was confrontational. And so at a time when a lot of Democrats were in a pretty defensive crouch, he was out there saying the Iraq war was wrong— you know, I mean, this was the moment of Joe Lieberman was running for president, you know, Gephardt um, and, and, and Daschle had sort of been like on board for the Iraq war, right? Like there's a lot going on in the party and a lot of fury over how the Democratic Party, many felt, had sort of rolled over for Bush. And Dean was not offering that liberal of an alternative. What he was offering was a confrontational alternative, a willingness to stand up and say, this is wrong. It is bad. I am not implicated in it. And so I can criticize it, which a lot of the people who, you know, this would end up happening to John Kerry, who'd sort of, while well, I was against, against the war before I was for it, that kind of thing, when you're weaving in and out of it, it it made it hard to have that clarity. And so Dean ran this sort of outsider confrontational campaign. And what he showed using these new tools, which back then, I mean, now it seems so quaint, but meetup.com, like that was like the big Dean organizing tool. Um, he was able to raise a tremendous amount of money and really creates this template for, you know, a, a campaign that is small donor driven, that uses the internet, not just to get money, but also, and this is so important, and I think so under notice sometimes, to get attention. It was because he was able to get so much excitement online and then translate that online excitement, particularly into money, that then like the media began to pay attention. Now that process happens much quicker because you can translate that online excitement into you go viral on Reddit, you go viral on Twitter and Facebook, and like the media tracks all that and sees it even faster than we would have during the Dean campaign. But so he's really like the beginning of can you create an alternative pathway to the nomination through the, through, through the internet, um, um, through sort of engagement online. Now, the thing I'll say about Dean, I talk about this in the book, is that if you read, Joe Tribune writes this very interesting book about it called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, I think it was. And the thing that I think about all the time, because I was part of that moment too, is the optimism of all that, right? We really, so many of us felt, and he felt, and, and, and I ended up reviewing this book in the Washington Monthly um, uh, a little while later, he really felt like this was going to be how the people took back power, and and it, it can be and maybe it will be. Um, but there's a sense that it is definitely going to create something good, right? Because the idea was like people were contrasting. There was like the corporate Democratic Party or the corporate media or whatever and then this sort of populist lane. But what you end up finding too, and Donald Trump is an example of this. He's an excellent small donor fundraiser and in, in many ways excellent at getting attention through through social media is that there is an energy that is often suppressed in politics by parties, by um, coalitions, by institutions, et cetera. And sometimes 
those are good ideas that are being suppressed wrongly, like the Iraq war is a disaster. And sometimes they are much darker impulses like um, xenophobic impulses or, you know, racist impulses that are being pushed back by parties that don't want that to be how they're defined, which obviously is the energy that Trump ends up utilizing. That very same, like Dean opens up a pathway that can be used by an Obama, by a Bernie Sanders, and also by a Donald Trump. And like that's, I think, really a lot of the roots of our politics are, 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 are there and people read into the Dean campaign more about there was more certainty that he represented something that like related to like what he believed and the direction he was coming from than I think was ultimately true. He represented a path that many different kinds of people could take. I want to get back to your story, but on the subject of Trump, he has a feral genius for this modern media environment. Uh, he understands that if he is provocative. If he can, if he lights his hair on fire, he can dominate the debate and discussion. He can inflame his base, and he pushes those buttons relentlessly. And honestly, people react in a Pavlovian way, including the media. I think about this a lot, and I've been writing about it. I write about it in my book, but I'll, I'll give an example that I think Donald Trump faces the media with a really hard question, and I don't think it's a question we tend to think it is. The media believes that our power is to cover things negatively or positively. Um, so if you know a politician is doing something outrageous, offensive, indecent, untrue, we can cover it negatively, and like then they will be punished. And what Donald Trump, whether he understands it or he just kind of intuitively plays into it, for him, the media's co power is that it covers things. Positive or negative doesn't really matter. He'll take positive coverage, but he'll also take negative coverage. And so what Trump understands is that before you have the war for are you being covered positively or negatively, you have the war and it's a more important one for are you being covered and you've worked on a, a, a lot of campaigns. Like You know how hard it is to get coverage for a lot of things you work hardest on. I remember how many speeches say in the Obama era, uh, in the Obama administration, these carefully planned, you guys would fly out to a steel mill in Ohio somewhere and you're going to make a speech on manufacturing. And like for love and money, you could not get that um, covered on cable news. If Donald Trump goes there and he says something racist, it – leads every um it leads every channel and like in the past couple of days you know we've been seeing him go through this whole thing where he falsely accuses Joe Scarborough of murder and it gets all this coverage he's able to wrench the conversation back because it's so outrageous and it's a, a fundamentally a hack of the system he understood that one of the media's kind of triggers like a failsafe was you can get coverage by being outrageous enough so he's constantly outrageous and he tries out a lot of things he sends out a lot of tweets he says a lot of stuff it's the one that works that he'll keep going on because it allows him to control the conversation. I don't think it is necessarily a strategic genius. It also makes him unpopular. He is high in favorables. He's not getting the coronavirus bump. Other The strategic thing right now would be to be a good president, but it does allow him to dominate the conversation. Well, the genius may not, the, 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 I, I couldn't agree with you more. If he behaved like the governors are behaving right now, he could have strengthened himself immeasurably. But uh, that's not his nature. You know, the scorpion and the frog story. I mean, it's just not his nature. He's or the one he liked to call the snake. <laughs> he liked to tell the story of the snake on the campaign trail, and he always meant it about immigrants, but I always thought it was an amazing parable for him. Yeah. Like, we knew what he was um, the whole time. Yeah. But uh, the genius is not about whether he's helping himself. The genius is gaming the media to cover him. Yes. And, and garnering attention you know, on that subject, you talk in your book about identity politics and about how, uh, you know, the party labels have become essentially a code for identity. People's identities are folded into their partisan affiliations and how often we fall into these categories. On COVID-19, you know, you said in your book, there may be national moments when we all rallied together and we can overcome this identity politics you, you, you said this was before the virus. You, you suggested a world war or something like that. We've ha now we have it, and yet we're falling right back into those lanes. Uh, you see it around the issue of masks and opening up. And, and I mean, there are economic reasons for people to feel very anxious and understood, understanding that. 
and why they want to open up. But now it's becoming, it's falling into a familiar pattern, and Trump is pushing it into that place. He is, you know, having failed, I think, in, in actually managing the crisis. He is now trying to fit the crisis into a rubric with which he feels more comfortable, which is us versus them. When this all started, I got a text from a friend. Um, and, you know, we started locking down. We locked down here in mid-March. So my book came out in January. So two months after my book came out. So my tour was just kind of ending. And my friend um, texted me as things were beginning to shelter in place and the CARES Act passed with a huge bipartisan majority. And she said, so is this the end of polarization? And I wrote back, check in with me in six weeks. And I, Donald Trump has clearly leaned into polarization as opposed to trying to push against it. Look, you think like a, like a Barack Obama, if something like this had happened on his watch, the amount of meetings you all would have been having in the White House about how to do national leadership right now, how to keep this from polarizing, how to try to like use the spirit of unity, I don't know how long it would have held together, but you would have tried. Trump never tried. The, he has actually only one strategy. But I, do, I really do try to think about the counterfactual here. What if it was Marco Rubio who was president or, you know, Mike DeWine or Hillary Clinton for that matter, right? How much of the polarization is built in and baked in and it is structural no matter what somebody does and how much of it is about what people do? And, of course, you can't even quite unt untangle this entirely because Donald Trump is a product of our – polarization of the way the parties are breaking apart of what of the way in which polarizing strategies work and so it is not unrelated to the structural dynamics it somebody very polarizing is in office and so i think that there is a counterfactual here where a moment of natural of national unity holds for longer i don't think that there is a counterfactual here where it holds um, I think if Hillary Clinton were president, you would have a culture war over masks. Maybe it would start six weeks later, but it would start and over opening up and all, all the rest of it. I think that the, the, the dynamics working backwards from an election are very, very hard to resist. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the major influences here. I mean, uh, we're 159 days from an election and that accentuates uh, all of this because po uh, polarization is a tool he is using that tool. But it's also true that when you're asking people to make major sacrifices, that is a politically difficult thing to do. And ultimately, people get frustrated. And Trump recognized that they were going to get frustrated. And he decided that he was going to try and capitalize on their frustration. So we have this unusual dynamic of a president whose government is promulgating guidance who is leading the resistance to the guidance his government is promulgating. It is weird. <laughs> it, it is It is totally weird. There's just this other world. Like, yes, you're asking people to make sacrifices. But what the Democrats want in Congress is more economic support. If you guys had had this congressional structure, like these dynamics during the recession, like you, you would have just been passing stimulus left and right. And so one of the things that I think is um, – interesting about this is there is some other world where Trump could make it so people weren't making nearly the sacrifices they're making. Like the, the expanded unemployment insurance could be going basically forever at this point. State and local aid could have passed a month ago. I mean, right. we are already seeing a decoupling of some of the economic pain uh, of, of, the, of the labor market from people's actual economic situations. And it could be much more decoupled if he wanted it to be. And so there is a way in which sacrifice is a very difficult thing, but he's not actually being forced into nearly as much sacrifices is being demanded. His hegemony over the Republican Party, I mean, the fact is, whether they liked it or not, if he had endorsed uh, a continuing regimen of relief, or if he does, they will do it. They're not going to resist. One thing he's proven is they will not resist him, uh, his congressional delegation. So uh, you're right. I mean, had he played it a different way, it could have been a different story uh, for him. I honestly think the way he's behaving now is reducing his chances of winning re-election all the time. He thinks that he is exciting his base and that if he can maximize his base and degrade Biden a little, that he can win. Let me ask you about Biden. You know, it's interesting because you talk about identity and identity politics is not limited to rising populations. It's also true that there's white identity politics and 
that's what uh, Make America Great Again was all about. It's like, let's turn the clock back when, you know, the white men were running the deal. And But when you think about it in that context, uh, you can see why Trump almost, why he bought himself an impeachment to try and stop Joe Biden from becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party, because Biden doesn't look like a threatening figure to that base of Trump's. He culturally doesn't look that way. Yeah. So something I try to do in the book is really redefine and, and open up the aperture on this term. And the argument I make is that identity is incredibly important in politics, but we have blinded ourselves to its role by attaching it only to marginalized groups, right? Or to, to, to smaller groups. So the most powerful forms of identity politics are always majoritarian, right? White identity politics, Christian identity politics. American is an identity. And the reason everybody had to have little flag pins for like five years in the after 9-11 was about making an identity signal. So just as a, as a note, you should always be looking for the identities that people aren't questioning and seeing his identity, because those are the ones that are actually uh, exerting the most force. We can talk about that more if you want. Biden is really interesting on this score. So one distinction between the Democratic and Republican parties is that the Democratic Party is an extraordinarily internally diverse party and the Republican Party is homogenous. And there can sound like there's a symmetry when I say those two things, like Democrats are the party of diversity and Republicans are the party of sort of white Christian people primarily. Those are not similar internal structures. Democrats are a lot of groups in constant compromise with each other. They are liberal Christians and Jewish people and Muslim people and atheists and agnostics and actually people who say they have no religion, no religious affiliation, are the single largest religious group in the Democratic Party. So you have to create a coalition of all those people or racially. And more ideologically diverse. About half of Democrats say they're liberal and three quarters of Republicans say they're conservative. And this is true racially as well. The Democratic Party is sort of white liberals, African-Americans, Asians, et cetera. Like, so in all, and then there's another thing on this that I think is super, super important, which is the Republican Party can win despite not winning the popular vote. That is true currently at the Senate level. It's true in the White House, as we see. It's also true at the House level, although they didn't do it um, in 2018. And so the Democrats have to not only do a lot of internal coalition building, they actually have to build a coalition with definitionally right-of-center voters. And so Joe Biden is the kind of candidate you get out of that process. Joe Biden is a candidate acceptable to a lot of groups simultaneously. And then, and I think this is actually what you're getting at, there are two ways of thinking about what you want to do in a polarizing era. The one that I think intuitively makes sense to polarized people, which is anybody who's very engaged in politics for the most part, is you want somebody who really excites the base, right? Polarization is about mobilization. And so you're going to get somebody who it's like, if they're going to have somebody they're thrilled about, we're going to have somebody we're thrilled about. And Biden is in many ways a, a different kind of theory playing out, which is you are going to have somebody who is broadly acceptable, is not the most exciting candidate really to anybody, um, not literally to anybody, but to any group in particular. But what he is, is a candidate who does not push the other side away. So if you think of any candidate as having a push factor and a pull factor, like he can like push his own people out, but pull the other side out too. Trump has a reasonably strong push factor and an incredibly strong pull factor. He's very mobilizing to the other side. Biden, he has some level of push factor. I mean, he did win the primary, but he was really, I think everybody agrees on this, it was the Donald Trump pull factor, um, Democrats coming out to vote for somebody who could beat Donald Trump that won Biden the nomination. And so what Biden is sort of a bet on is what if you could have a candidate who was like not necessarily that exciting, but in order for that, did not overexcite the other side. So could you then let Donald Trump do the Democratic mobilization and Biden demobilize a lot of like middling Trump supporters? And I don't think it's a crazy bet at all. And obviously Trump doesn't either. And I think they're going to spend a lot of time trying to make Biden more polarizing and scary in the next 159 days. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Now Biden has to pick a vice president. And so do you pick a candidate who pleases some of the elements of the Democratic Party that you, you don't reflect and 
pick on the grounds that that candidate can help excite those elements of the electorate that you don't excite. And we saw it in the primary, and it's one of the reasons why he couldn't raise money online very well. He doesn't, he's not that kind of a candidate. Or do you pick someone who, who is not someone who could be used by the other side as a symbol uh, to organize uh, around? Because this, you know, it, this is, this is, I think, the calculation that Biden has to make. Well, you're the political professional, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but I'll I'll tell you mine, (laughs) which is one, the evidence that people vote for vice presidents is really weak. Yeah, I agree. People always like want to make this the conversation. It's just super weak. Um, They don't seem to do it. Um, They don't seem to do it when the vice president is like exciting or polarizing and they don't do it when they're not. Um, So that's number one. I just think that whole conversation matters less than people want it to. Joe Biden is a 77-year-old man during a viral pandemic that particularly attacks older people. Um, And he's going to face, even if everything is great with his health, which hopefully it will be, the hardest job of any incoming president in memory. Like what the economy and the public health situation are going to look like in January of 2021 is going to be really rough. He needs to pick the person who could be president and who can do the most to help him be president um, as a partner. And if God forbid, he can't keep serving as president if he wins, um, who can step into that role. Uh, Like, if you want to know who I, like, I have been very impressed continuously by Elizabeth Warren, and I think she'd be a good call on this. But my argument for her is not that she will help him win someone or other or unite the left. My argument for Elizabeth Warren is she is an excellent person if you need to simultaneously rebuild the federal government and do a massive economic mobilization. Um, but I think that the like I think the question here fundamentally is who can help him govern most effectively, and he will have to make that call because it also, as you know better than I do, it is the relationship that you can have a very capable vice president, but if you don't personally trust them as president, they're not going to be in the meetings and they're not going to be influential. So there's an alchemy there that's really important that I can't, you know, that is not something that a pundit can tell, you know, what 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 it's going to be in advance. Uh, look, I agree with you completely. And Warren, she's manifestly qualified to play the role you're talking about. And I agree with you on vice presidents. The, the, the last time it really made a difference was probably 1960 because Lyndon Johnson could deliver Texas. And, you know, we don't live in those times anymore. But, you know, the question is whether people will look at the VP candidate any differently for the reason you said, which is he is 77 years old. We are living in the age of the virus. And the actuarial odds are that you might be picking a president in a way that isn't as obvious when you pick a vice president's before. So if I'm strategizing on the other side, and I'm not saying it's a reason not to pick Elizabeth Warren, um, my argument then becomes, this guy's not really going to be the president. He's not going to be, you know, he's not even going to be around. He doesn't, you know, that's their argument. They're trying to make the argument that Biden isn't fit uh, to serve. So, so this VP he picks, that person, if it's an Elizabeth Warren, who's a luminescent personality, she's going to be running the country. So we're really voting on that. It's a bank shot. I'm not saying it's going to work, but that's, I'm sure, what would happen if that was the choice that he made. Yeah. I think, I think what it all resolves down to is what he cannot do is pick a Sarah Palin. The thing that he cannot do is pick somebody who people feel is not immediately ready to serve. This is just not a time to take a flyer. Yeah, I agree. But he's got a very... He's got just an – sometimes I almost want to like sit back and try to appreciate this. He's got a very hard job ahead of him. And I go back and forth a little bit. Like I understand the strategy of not making too much news right now, and I do think it is a strategy. They're doing just enough so nobody can say they're not out there, but they're not trying to make news. They're not coming out with gigantic policy pronouncements. I mean you, you there's a decision about whether or not you send your candidate out with something that people are going to talk about or not, and they are not. They're also, I don't necessarily think you need that like massive agenda to get elected, but I do think you will need it to save the country. I think where the, so here's what I think is going to happen in the economy in the next six months. And and I could be wrong, right? Like take my, if if I was a amazing economic forecaster, presumably I'd be richer, but um, we are going to have, this is what all the forecasters tell me. We're going to have some level of bounce back through the summer. 
Um, states are going to be reopening more or less. So we've lost something like 35 million jobs. Be very plausible to see three to four million per month job growth in June, in July, maybe not June, but certainly July, August, maybe into September. And then it's going to, we're going to very likely have a second wave of the virus in the fall, or maybe we will even have it in the summer already. Maybe it'll just be a continuously building first wave because we actually haven't got that much immunity. And we will not have nearly gotten back to full employment, right? We will still be at a 13, 16% unemployment rate, something like that. And so people are going to simultaneously feel things are getting better. And also the level of economic pain is going to get much worse. Republicans are not going to extend crucial parts of the stimulus. There's not going to be a lot more coming during this period. So at the same time that things look like they're getting better, for a lot of people, what felt maybe like a temporary economic problem is going to like congeal into their new situation. And- you are not then going to need as an ex-president, if he wins, to just like do some stimulus. You're actually going to need to rebuild parts of an economy that were bombed out until there's a vaccine. Restaurants are not fully coming back, live events, all kinds of things. And that's just going to require a flexible and ambitious approach to policymaking that I wish he was demonstrating now. Yeah, yeah. I Listen, I agree with you. I think often about when we came to office in 2009, and I used to say, then this is the worst hand anybody's been dealt since Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. But that's going to look like child's play uh, compared to what uh, the next president's going uh, to face. And uh, it is going to require, you know, big structural thinking about uh, how to move forward. Um, speaking of structure, by the way, on this issue of uh, polarization, you know, what was interesting to me as I was reading your book is I was involved in a campaign in 2008 in which we were, we, he was the first African-American nominee of a party. We steered so far away from these polarization flare points and navigated it pretty well. You're, you know, he's the only Democrat since 1964 to carry the state of Indiana. And we actually ran against polarization. That was a fundamental theme of our campaign. And people responded to it. There was a constituency for it. Now, maybe... Uh, even within the Democratic Party, there was a constituency for it. The theory was, you can't run like that and be the nominee. Now, he got special dispensation because he was African-American. He had a built-in constituency. He had been against the war in Iraq, which gave him bona fides with the left that he might not have had and that none of the other candidates had. Um, so all of those, but, but we were very assiduous about trying not to run in the tracks of identity politics, of polarization, and we were successful. What you also write, uh, which is really, really telling, is it worked as an electoral strategy. It didn't work as a governing strategy because the Republicans didn't want to play. And Mitch McConnell identified and said so that if we cooperate with him, then it'll prove that he was right. And then we'll be a minority party for a generation. And so we're going to fight him on everything. And that's what happened. And um, so the question is, can you get to a point where you can find a way to cooperate uh, as a governing strategy and not just as an electoral strategy? Because I believe after Trump, there may be a hunger for, well, there may be a hunger for what Biden represents, uh, a little bit more comedy, a sense of more cooperation. Well, hunger on the part of whom, though, right? It's not going to be on the part of Mitch McConnell. No, no, I understand. Uh, no, it's, it's not. And I assume he'd take the same posture that he took if he's still here. Running against polarization is always a good, I think, always a good political strategy if you can do it. Um, I think Biden's doing it and, and it's clear it has some potency to it. And then the reason I focus so much on the structure of governance, I mean, I, have a, I believe the chapter in my book is called When Bipartisanship Becomes Irrational. And something I make the argument for that a lot of liberals don't love this part of the book is that Mitch McConnell has acted rationally throughout. I don't like how he's acted. I wish he wouldn't act that way. But he's not wrong. If your role as the leader is to secure power for your party and a majority uh, then he acted absolutely rationally and in, in, in a diabolically clever way. Yes. And that's a thing. And I don't even know how clever it, like sometimes I think people get, like a, a, attach him as strategic genius when like his big strategy was vote no on stuff yeah. <laughs> over and over and over again. And it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I offer this metaphor in the book or analogy or something where I say like, imagine you work in an office 
and your boss, you don't like your boss, you don't think your boss's work is good for the world, and none of your friends like your boss. Now, your boss, in order to do his job, needs your help. And if you help him, he's going to get promoted and you may get fired. And if you don't help him, he may get fired and you may get promoted. So given that you don't like your boss, your friends don't like your boss, and if you stop him, you may get his job. Are you going to help your boss? And that's basically how Congress works. It is not a system set up to deliver the results we want to. And I have a whole long story about why it worked mid-century of mixed parties and a four-party system and all this, which, you won't, which I, I, won't, I won't recount at all here. Or in periods, you point out, when there are large party majorities and it is futile for the minority to fight, so they have to accommodate. Yes, Exactly. But in a, in a, in a sharply two-party system during a period of competitive dynamics, you are not going to get this kind of cooperation. And you, Joe Biden is not, and, and, and nobody is. And, and to me, I mean, I think you can tell that some of this book is me struggling with at least some of Barack Obama's legacy. Yeah. And he, I think, offers in many ways the single best test of some of this. I mean, here is somebody who ran against polarization in many ways his entire um, – his entire life was a argument against polarization's logic, and he becomes the most polarizing president in modern polling. Well, because as you point out, and I always knew this when we were there, I mean, in many ways, he symbolized the change that the opposition feared. And I don't mean party, just party change, but he was a, he was African-American. He was highly educated, cosmopolitan, yeah. uh, you know, liberal, and you know, he was a symbol of what they feared. It is depressing to me, and I think also true, and at times Joe Biden has kind of said this. He said it about Hillary Clinton. Um, there is a, li- a set of licenses he has that Obama didn't have and that Clinton didn't have. Joe Biden said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's from memory, but he said, you know, they really, you know, they were really, there was a lot of sexism against Hillary Clinton. A lot of people went after her because she's a woman. And he said something like, I'll tell you what, folks, it's not going to happen with me. <laughs> He did it. <laughs> it was a very Biden-like statement. He didn't mean it in, in a bad way. And he's right. It's a true thing. Right. But I mean, yes, I talk a lot in the book about demographic dimensions to all this. And I talk a lot in the book about the ways in which um, the ways in which the parties aligning around demography, which is not what was true in mid-century American politics, and the demography being under rapid change, we're on a very rapid path to being uh, not just a majority-minority country racially, but also, by the way, and I think this is more important than people give it credit for, the Christian dominance and certainly the Protestant Christian dominance of this country is changing very rapidly. The fastest-growing group is sorry, the religiously unaffiliated. Those things are really upending politics. They are really changing. And so when you have... um, players who represent that, politicians who represent that in one way or another, they activate a level of cultural threat on the other side that can way overwhelm their actual strategic decisions. Barack Obama was endlessly trying to balance what he represented by the very act of his existence and his success and what he was saying and doing and trying to downplay in politics. And ultimately, like those things were always intention for him. Um, one thing Joe Biden is able to do is he does not activate that cultural threat. He's like an old white guy. Um, and that gives him a little bit of license in his politics that I don't think it's going to like help him with Mitch McConnell because elections are zero sum. But I think it in ways that are a little bit depressing, I think you see in the polling, you know, like it certainly helps him with old white people. Yeah, yeah. You talk about what is a really concerning uh, thing, which is we have this structural problem in our democracy, uh, and you mentioned it before, where where majorities vote for a candidate and the other candidate becomes president. The majority of the country is not reflected by the majority of the Senate, uh, often by the House. You've got four Supreme Court justices appointed by presidents who were elected by fewer votes than their opponent uh, got and aren't necessarily reflective of majority views in the country. And we have, you know, more often than not, gridlock in government. So change is coming rapidly. Government is gridlocked. The institutions don't necessarily represent a majority. And that seems like an enormous amount of tension for a democracy. And you, you wrote a final chapter that looked to me like one that your publishers told you you had to write because you couldn't leave people uh, without some hope for the future. And you have a few suggestions. But this is a real bind for our I think this is an inflection point for our democracy and technology 
is driving it faster and faster and faster. This is, I think, the central problem. Um, I don't think, pol- I, I want to say super clearly, I don't think polarization is the central problem in American politics. I think that it is the interaction of polarization and our political institutions, which is fundamentally what the book is about. And one of those political institutions is our electoral institutions. So right now, the White House and the Senate and through those, the Supreme Court are held by the party that won fewer votes in the relevant elections. And it was entirely possible that that would have happened in 2018 too, if Democrats had won the popular vote by plus two and not plus eight, Republicans probably would have kept the gavel in the House. And so this capacity to um, have a party that does not need to win a majority in order to win power creates really, really, I don't want to say Yeah, it creates really grim incentives for that party. Look, run the counterfactual the other way, right? Hillary Clinton runs for president in 2016. Donald Trump is a Republican nominee. Um, Hillary Clinton is understood in many ways ultimately to be a kind of weak candidate, but she wins by whatever it was, 2.9 million votes, something like that. And because she won by 2.9 million votes, she won, right? Which is a way I think like little kids think our democracy works. And now inside the Republican party, there is a fury at the Trumpist faction, the faction that wanted to rebuild the Republican Party around functionally ethno-nationalist lines, that they blew a winnable election. There's a belief that John Kasich could have won, that Marco Rubio could have won, that maybe even Jeb Bush could have won, and that instead, like, the party went to Donald Trump and lost. And so that part of the party weakens dramatically. Instead, because Donald Trump was able to win despite losing the vote, that part of the party strengthens dramatically. Having these... I think you can survive. Systems can be built such that they work amidst polarization, amidst this kind of splitting. But the way our system is built between the things that make it impossible to govern well, given polarization, because of the amount of compromise you need but can't get, but then also the electoral systems that allow you to win power despite like using a smaller and smaller part of, uh, of the population, then use that power to make it easier to win power atop a minority in the future through voter ID laws and other things. I think that's really dangerous. And like my recommendation is to fix it, but we can talk about it if you want, but for all the reasons that it's hard to govern, it's hard to fix. I'm going to say to people uh, who are listening that they should read why we're polarized and read Ezra's last chapter as to his structural suggestions about how we can ease this situation and give more voice to the majority in the country uh, in terms of being reflected in our institutions. Before I go, I'm going to say you went to Washington. You kind of helped invent with a bunch of other young journalists this uh, explanatory journalism. You uh, started the uh, Wonk blog at the Washington Post where you developed it and spent five years there and then you went to Vox, uh, Vox.com, and, and you've developed quite a, an operation there. What is the future of explanatory journalism? What is the role for facts in this environment in which facts are being degraded all the time? And you relish them, obviously. Uh, you spend a lot of time trying to get to the core of it. Um, just tell me what you see the future is, and what are the pressures on your operation uh, as well as other media groups to do what you talked about earlier, to, to also give people uh, not what they need to know, but what they want to know. Explanatory journalism, which I think of as journalism that focuses on the context of new information, right? The context you put new information in. I think the future of it is it is more widely dispersed through every newsroom, which I think is already happening. I think that you see a lot more of it at the New York Times than you used to. I mean, obviously, my team has a lineage at the Washington Post. There's a lot of it there. Uh, I got an email from minority leader Kevin McCarthy's office uh, touting an an explainer video they did, and it had yellow highlighting just like Vox and the whole thing. So to the degree that there has been a, a push to make this more of one of the formats journalism uses regularly, I think that has been um, successful, not in every respect, but but in many. And so we have to keep building on it. And like any kind of journalism, the question is how good of a job you do with it. You can be a good explainer journalist or a bad explanatory journalist. But 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 I think the idea that like we need to make it easier for people to catch up and build context, that's really out there. And I think it's been a really successful push. Um, the pressures on the system right now are dramatic. Uh, they're worsened, of course, by COVID, which is 
just gutting the advertising industry for journalism. Um, all of these organizations, including mine, are seeing audience numbers like we've never seen before, audience loyalty like we've never seen before, appreciation. Our mission is very clear, but the advertisers, one, don't have as much money as they did, right? So they're cutting advertising budgets, but two, also don't want to be next to depressing coronavirus news. So there's a move towards consolidation if you're the New York Times and have this massive subscription uh, program, like that's kind of working out for you, but everybody else is really suffering. And I'm sure in the short term, the Times is also suffering in terms of, uh, of ads. That makes it very hard for journalists to address the other thing you asked about, which is giving people not the news they want, not the sort of like the thing that everybody's talking about. So it's really easy to get maximum audience on it, but kind of zagging where other people are zigging. The more pressure you're under, the harder it is to make contrarian decisions. The more pressure you're under, the harder it is to say, yeah, that might be the quickest way to audience, but that's not my mission. And so people are able to do a lot of things that might be a little bit economically inefficient, but important for the work. Um, it is easier to do in times of prosperity than in times of incredible strain when you're, what you're really trying to do in the background is make sure you don't have to cut your newsroom. And so this is going to be a, a hard, this is going to be a hard couple of years. There's really no getting around that. Yeah. And one of the related issues that concerns me is that this is just going to add one more brick on the load that's already breaking for local journalism. Yes. Uh, and you see it all over the country. And that's a huge dark hole, these news deserts that are being created. Uh, that's a big problem for our democracy. We could do a whole nother conversation on that. Ezra Klein, uh, I, I knew that I would run out of time before I could cover everything I wanted to cover with you. I hope we can do this again. And everybody knows the weeds, the Ezra Klein show, all your work on Vox. Always fun to do. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.